Last time we introduced the way in which the preoccupation with literary and other forms of theory in the 20th century is shadowed by a certain skepticism. But as we were talking about that, we actually introduced another issue which isn't, which isn't quite the same as the issue of skepticism, namely determinism. In other words, we said that in intellectual history, first you get this movement uh, of concern about the distance between the perceiver and the perceived, uh, a concern that gives rise to skepticism about whether we can know things as they really are. Uh, but then, uh, as, a kind of, as a kind of aftermath of that movement, in figures like Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, and you'll notice that Foucault reverts to such figures when he turns to the whole question of founders of discursivity, we'll come back to that. In figures like that, you, you, be, you get the further question, not just how we can know things in themselves as they really are, but how we can trust the autonomy of that which knows. In other words, how we can trust the autonomy of consciousness if, in fact, there's a chance, a good chance according to these writers, that it is in turn governed by, controlled by, hidden powers or forces. And this question of determinism uh, is, as, is as important uh, in the discourse of literary theory uh, as the question of skepticism. They're plainly inter interrelated in a variety of ways, uh, but it's more that question to which uh, I want to return today. Now, last time, uh, following Recur, uh, I mentioned Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud as key figures in this sort of secondary development that somehow inaugurates theory, uh, and then I added Darwin. And it seems particularly important to think of Darwin when we begin to think about the ways in which in the 20th century, a variety of thinkers are concerned about human agency, that is to say, what becomes of the idea that we have autonomy, that we can act, or at least that we can act with a sense of integrity uh, and not just uh, with a sense that we're uh, being pulled uh, by our strings like a puppet. Uh, the, in the aftermath of Darwin in particular, our understanding of natural selection, our understanding of genetic hardwiring and other factors makes us begin to wonder in what sense we can consider ourselves, each of us, to be autonomous subjects. And so, as I say, the question of agency arises, and it's in that context, needless to say, that I'd like to take a look at these two interesting pa passages on the sheet that has Chekhov on one side uh, and James on the other. Let's begin with the Chekhov. Uh, the Cherry Orchard, you know, is about the uh, threat uh, owing to socioeconomic conditions, the conditions that do ultimately lead to the Menshevik Revolution of 1907, to a landed estate uh, and the perturbation and turmoil uh, into which the cast of characters is thrown by this threat. Now, one of the more interesting characters, who's not really a protagonist in the play for class reasons, is a house servant named Yapikadov. 
And Yepigadov is a character who is, among other things, a kind of autodidact. That is to say, he has scrambled in uh, to a certain measure of knowledge about things. Uh, he is full of a kind of understandable self-pity, and uh, his uh, speeches uh, are in some ways more characteristic of the gloomy intellectual milieu that is reflected in Chekhov's text really than almost anyone else's. And I wanted uh, to quote to you a couple of them. Uh, toward the bottom of the first page he says, I am a cultivated man. I read all kinds of remarkable books, and yet I can never make out what direction I should take, what it is that I want properly speaking. And as I read, pay attention to the degree to which he's constantly talking about language and about the way in which he himself is inserted into language. He's perpetually seeking a mode of properly speaking. Uh, he is a person who is uh, uh, somewhat knowledgeable about books, feels himself somehow to be caught up in the matrix of book learning. Uh, in other words, a person who is very much preoccupied with his conditioning by language. Uh, not least when, perhaps unwittingly, he alludes to Hamlet. Should I live or should I shoot myself, properly speaking, to be or not to be? In other words, he inserts himself into the dramatic tradition to which as a character he himself belongs uh, and shows himself to be uh, in a debased form derived from one of those famous charismatic moments uh, in which a hero utters a comparable concern. Uh, and so in all sorts of ways, in this simple passage, we find a character who's caught up in the snare, if I can put it that way, caught up in the snare of language. Uh, to continue, uh, in the, uh, he says, uh, properly speaking, top of the next page, properly speaking and letting other subjects alone, I must say everything in terms of what other discourse does and what he himself can say, I must say, and of course it's mainly about me, regarding myself, among other things, that fate treats me mercilessly as a storm treats a small boat. The end of the passage is, have you read Buckle? Now, Buckle is a forgotten name today, but at one time he was just about as famous as Os Oswald Spengler who wrote The Decline of the West. He was a Victorian historian preoccupied with the dissolution of Western civilization. In other words, Buckle was the avatar of the notion in the late 19th century that everything was going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, the one of the texts that Yepigadov has read that in a certain sense determines him uh, is Buckle. Have you read Buckle? I wish to have a word with you, Avdotya Fyodorovna. In other words, uh, I'm arguing that the saturation of these speeches with signs of words, language, speaking, words, books, is just the dilemma of the character. That is to say, he is in a certain sense book and language determined, and he's obscurely aware that this is his problem even as it's a source of pride for him. Turning then to a passage in a very different tone 
from James's ambassadors, an altogether charming character, the elderly Lambert Strether, who has gone to, most of you know, has gone to Paris to bring home the young Chad Newsom, a relative who's to take over the family business, uh, the manufacturer of an unnamed household article in Woollett, Massachusetts, probably toilet paper. In any case, Lambert Strether, as he arrives in Paris, uh, has awakened to the sheer wonder of urbane culture, and, he's re and he recognizes that he's missed something. And he's gone to a, to a party given by a sculptor, and at this party he meets a young man named Little Billum, whom he likes, and he takes Little Billum aside by the lapel uh, and he makes a long speech to him, uh, in effect saying, don't do what I have done. Don't miss out on life. Live all you can. It is a mistake not to. And this is why, he goes on to say, the affair I mean the affair of life, it's as though he's anticipating the affair of Chad Newsom and Madame de Vianney, which is revealed at the end of the text. The, the, the affair, I mean the affair of life, couldn't no doubt have been different for me. For it's, it meaning life, life is, at the best, a tin mold, either fluted or embossed, with ornamental excrescences or else smooth and dreadfully plain into which a helpless jelly, one's consciousness, is poured, so that one takes the form, as the great cook says. Great cook, by the way, is Priya Savarin. One takes the form, as the great cook says, and is more or less compactly held by it. One lives in fine as one can. Still, one has the illusion of freedom. And here's where Strether says something very clever that I think we can make use of. He says, therefore, don't be like me without the memory of that illusion. I was either at the right time too stupid or too intelligent to have it. I don't quite know which. Now, if he was too stupid to have it, then, of course, he would have been liberated into the realm of action. He would have been what Nietzsche, in an interesting precursor text, calls historical man. He simply would have plunged ahead into life as though he had freedom, even though he was too stupid that it was to, that he, to recognize that it was an illusion. On the other hand, if he was too intelligent to, as it were, bury the illusion and live as though he were free. If he was too intelligent to do that, he's a kind of an avatar of the literary theorist. In other words, the sort of person who can't forget long enough that freedom is an, in, in, is an illusion in order to get away from the preoccupations that, as I've been saying, uh, characterize a certain kind of thinking in the 20th century. And it's rather charming at the last that he says, because how can we know anything? I don't quite know which. And so that too strikes me as a helpful and also characteristic passage that can introduce us to today's subject, which is the loss of authority. That is to say, in Roland Barthes' terms, the death of the author, in Foucault's terms, the question, what is an author? 
In other words, the first sacrifice in the absence of human agency, the first sacrifice for literary theory is the author, the idea of the author, and that's what will concern us in this second still introductory lecture to this course. We'll get into the proper uh, or, or at least more systematic business of the course uh, uh, when we turn to hermeneutics next week. Now, let me, let me set the scene. This is Paris. wouldn't have to be Paris. It could be Berkeley or Columbia or maybe Berlin. It's 68-69, spilling over into the 70s. Students and most of their professors are on the barricades, that is to say, in, the after, in, in, in protest not only against the war in Vietnam but the outpouring of various forms of authoritative resistance to protest that characterized the 60s. There is a ferment of intellectual revolt which takes all sorts of forms in Paris but is first and foremost perhaps organized by what quickly in this country became a bumper sticker, question authority. This is the framework in which the then most prominent intellectual in France writes an essay at the very peak of the student uprising, what is an author? and poses an answer which is by no means straightforward and simple. You're probably a little frustrated because maybe you sort of anticipated what he was going to say, and then you read it and you said, gee, he really isn't saying that. In fact, I don't quite know what he is saying, uh, and, and, and struggled more than you expected to uh, because you anticipated what I've just been saying about the setting and about the role of Foucault and all the rest of it, and were possibly more confused than you might have expected to be, and yet at the same time you probably felt, oh yeah, well I did come out pretty much in the place I expected to come out in despite the roundabout way of having gotten there. Because this lecture is introductory, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time explicating the more difficult moments uh, in his argument. Uh, I am going to emphasize what you perhaps did anticipate that he would say, uh, and so that can take us along rather smoothly. There is an initial issue, and because we're as skeptical about skepticism as we are about anything else, we're likely to raise our eyebrows and say, hmm, doesn't this guy Foucault think he's an author? You know, I mean, after all, he's a superstar. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he, he's, he, he's used to being taken very seriously. Does he want to say that he's just an author function, that his textual field is a kind of set of structural operations within which one can discover an author? Does he really want to say this? Well, this is the question raised by the skeptic about skepticism or about theory, and it's one that we're going to take rather seriously, but we're going to come back to it because there are ways, it seems to me, of keeping this question at arm's length. In other words, Foucault is up to something interesting, and probably we should meet him at least halfway to see, to measure the degree of interest. And so, yes, there is the question 
there is the there is the fact that stands before us that this very authoritative sounding person seems to be an author, right? I mean, I never never met anybody who seemed more like an author than 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 this person, uh, and yet he's raising the question whether there is any such thing, or in any case, the question how difficult it is to decide what it is uh, if there is. And so, let me digress with an anecdote which may or may not sort of help us to understand the delicacy of this relationship between a star author, a person undeniably a star author, and the atmosphere of thought in which there is, in a certain sense, no such thing as an author. An old crony and former colleague of mine uh, was taking a course at Johns Hopkins in the 1960s. This was a time when Hopkins led all American universities in the importing of important European scholars, uh, and it was a place of remarkable intellectual ferment. And this particular lecture course was being given by Georges Poulet, uh, a, a so-called phenomenological critic. It's one, of the, it's one of the isms we aren't covering in this seminar, but in any case, Poulet was also a central figure on the scene of the 60s. And Poulet would be lecturing along, and there, the students had somehow formed a habit of, from time to time, by the way, you can form this habit too, of raising their hand. And what they would do is they would utter a name. At least this is what my friend noticed. They would raise their hand and they would say, Malarmé. And Poulet would look at them and say, Mais oui, exactement. À mon avis. Yeah, yeah. And then he would go on. And he, would, he would go on. And, and Continued a lecture for a while, and somebody else would raise his hand and say, Proust! Ah, précisément. Proust, Proust. And then, you know, he'd continue along. So my friend decided he'd, he'd give it a try. <laughs> and he raised his hand and he said, Voltaire! And Poulet said, Quoi donc? Je ne vous comprends pas. And then paused and hesitated and continued with his lecture as though my friend had never asked his question. Now, this is a, this is a ritual of introducing names. But and, and in a certain sense, yes, the names of authors, the names of stars. But at the same time, plainly, names that stand for something other than their mere name. Names that stand for domains or fields of interesting discursivity. That is to say, I mean, Poulet was the kind of critic who, who believed that, it, that the oeuvre of an author was a totality that could be understood as a structural whole, and his criticism worked that way. And so, yes, the, the signal that this field of discursivity is on the table is introduced by the name of the author, but it remains just a name. It's an author without authority, simply yet at the same time, it's an author who stands for, whose name stands for, an important field of discourse. And that's, of course, what my friend, because he knew perfectly well that when he said Voltaire, 
Poulet would, would <laughs> have nothing to do with it. Uh, that, that's, that's, the, that's the idea that my friend wanted to experiment with. There are relevant and interesting fields of discourse, and there are completely irrelevant fields of discourse, and uh, some of these fields are on the sides of angelic discourse, and some of these fields are on the side of the demonic, uh, and, so, and, and, and we simply kind of spontaneously make the division. Discursivity, discourse, that's what I forgot to talk about last time. When I said that, sometimes people just ultimately throw up their hands when they try to define literature uh, and say, well, literature is just whatever you say it is, um, fine, let's just go ahead, uh, are much more likely, rather than using the word literature, to use the word discourse or textual field. Uh, discursivity. You begin to hear the slight, or, or perhaps smell, the slight whiff of jargon uh, that pervades theoretical writing. It always does so for a reason. Uh, this is the reason one hears so much about discourse, simply because of doubt about the generic integrity of various forms of discourse. One can speak hesitantly of literary discourse, political discourse, uh, anthropological discourse, but one doesn't want to go so far as to say literature, political science, anthropology. And so it's, it, it, it's a habit that arises from this sense of the permeability of all forms of utterance with respect to each other. Uh, and that habit, uh, as I say, is a kind of is, is a breakdown of the notion that certain forms of utterance can be understood as a delimited, structured field. And one of the reasons this understanding seems so problematic is the idea that we don't appeal to the authority of an author in making our mind about the nature of a given field of discourse. We find the authority of the author instead somewhere within the textual experience. The author is a signal, is what Foucault calls a function. The author certainly appears. By the way, th this isn't at all a question of the author not existing. Yes, Bach talks about the death of the author, but he doesn't. Uh, but even Bach doesn't mean that the author is dead like Nietzsche's God. Um, the author is there, sure. It's a question rather of how we know the author to be there. As firstly, and secondly, whether or not in attempting to determine the meaning of, the a of a text, and this is something we'll be talking about next week, we should appeal to the authority of an author. If the author is a function, that function is something that appears, perhaps problematically appears, within the experience of the text, something we get in terms of the speaker the narrator, or in the case of plays, the orchestrator of the text, something that we infer from the way the text unfolds. So as a function and not as a subjective consciousness to which we appeal to grasp a meaning, the author still does exist. So we consider a text as a structured entity or perhaps as an entity which is structured and yet at the same time somehow or another passes out of structure, uh, that's the case with Roland Barthes, and in so doing 
And here I want to appeal to a couple of passages. I want to, be, I want to, I want to quote from the beginning of Roland Bach's essay, which I know I only suggested, but I'm simply going to quote the passage so you don't have to have read it, uh, The Death of the Author. It's on page 874. Those of you who have your text, as I hope you do. Bach, Bach is, while writing this, he's writing what has perhaps in retrospect seemed to be his most important book. It's called S.Z. It's a huge book which is all about this short story by Balzac, Saracine, uh, that he begins this essay by quoting. And this is what he says about Saracine. In, in his story Saracine, Balzac, describing a castrato disguised as a woman, writes the following sentence. This was woman herself, with her sudden fears, her irrational whims, her instinctive worries, her imperious boldness, her fussings, and her delicious sensibility." End quote. Bach says, who is speaking thus? Is it the hero of the story, bent on remaining ignorant of the castrato hidden beneath the woman? Is it Balzac the individual? furnished by his personal experience with a philosophy of woman? Is it Balzac the author professing literary ideas on femininity? Is it universal wisdom, romantic psychology? We shall never know, for the good reason that writing is the destruction of every voice, of every point of origin. Writing is that neutral, composite, oblique space where our subject, and this is a deliberate pun, our subject slips away. Our subject meaning that we don't quite know what's being talked about sometime, but also, and more importantly, the subject, the authorial subject, the actual identity of the given speaking subject. That's what slips away. The negative where all identity is lost, starting with the very identity of the body writing." So that's a shot fired across the bow against the author uh, because it's Bach's supposition that we really it's th th the author isn't maybe quite a, an author function because that, uh, that function may be hard to identify in a discrete way among uh, myriad other functions. Foucault, who I think does take for granted that a textual field is more firmly structured than Bach supposes, Foucault says on page 913, when we speak of the author function as opposed to the author, and here I begin quoting uh, at the bottom of the left-hand column on page 913, when we speak in this way, we no longer raise the questions how can a free subject penetrate the substance of things and give it meaning? How can it activate the rules of a language from within and thus give rise to the designs which are properly own, its own? In other words, we no longer say, how does the author exert autonomous will with respect to the subject matter being expressed? We no longer appeal in other words, to the authority of the author as the source of the meaning that we find in the text. Foucault continues, instead these questions will be raised. How, under what conditions, 
And in what forms can something like a subject appear in the order of discourse? What place can it occupy in each type of discourse? What functions can it assume? And by obeying what rules? In short, it is a matter of depriving the subject, that is to say, when we speak in this way of an author function, it is a matter of depriving the subject or its substitute, a character, for example, or a speaker, as we say, when we don't mean that it's the poet talking, but uh, the guy speaking in My Last Duchess or whatever, right? Its role so we, of depriving the subject or its substitute of its role as originator and of analyzing the subject as a variable and complex function of discourse. The subject here always means the subjectivity of the speaker, right? not, not the subject matter. That's, you'll, you'll, get, you'll get used to it because it's a word that does a lot of duty uh, and you need to develop context in which you recognize, well, yeah, I'm talking about the human subject or, well, I'm talking about the subject matter. Uh, but uh, I trust that you will quickly kind of uh, uh, adjust to, to, to that difficulty. All right, so with this said, Probably it's time to say something in defense of the author. I mean, I know that you wish you could stand up here and say something in defense of the author, so I will speak in behalf of all of you who want to defend the author by quoting a wonderful passage from Samuel Johnson's preface to Shakespeare, in which he explains for us why it is that we have always paid homage to the authority of the author. It's not just a question, as obviously Foucault and Barthes are always suggesting, of deferring to authority as though the authority were the police with a baton in its hand. Right? It's not a question of deferring to authority in that sense. It's, it's, it's a question, rather, of affirming what we call the human spirit. And this is what Johnson says. There is always a silent reference of human works to human abilities. And as the inquiry, how far man may extend his designs or how high he may rate his native force, is of far greater dignity than in what rank we shall place any particular performance, curiosity is always busy to discover the instruments as well as to survey the workmanship, to know how much is to be ascribed to original powers and how much to casual and adventitious help. So what Johnson is saying is, well, it's all very well to consider a textual field, the workmanship, but at the same time we want to remind ourselves of our worth. We want to say, well, gee, it's not just sort of, it, that wasn't produced by a machine. That was, that's not just a set of functions, variables as one might say in the lab. It's produced by Genius! It's, it, it's, it's something that allows us to rate human ability high, and that, especially in this veil of tears, and Johnson is very conscious of this being a veil of tears, that's what we want to keep doing. We want to rate human potential as high as we can, and it is for that reason, in a completely different spirit, in the spirit of homage rather than cringing fear, that we appeal to the authority of an author. Well, all right, that's an argument for the other side. But these are different times. This is 69. 
And the reason, the purpose that's alleged for appealing to the author as a paternal source, as an authority, is, according to both Barthes and Foucault, to police the way texts are read. In other words, both of them insist that the appeal to the author, as opposed to the submersion of the author in the functionality of the textual field, that the appeal to the author is a kind of delimitation or policing of the possibilities of meaning. Let me just read two texts to that effect. First, going back to Roland Barthes uh, on page 877. Bach says, once the author is removed, the claim to decipher a text becomes quite futile. By the way, once again, there's a bit of a rift there between Bach and Foucault. Foucault wouldn't say quite futile. He'd say, oh no, we can decipher it, but the author function is just one aspect of the deciphering process. But Bach has entered a phase of his career in which he actually thinks that structures are so complex that they cease to be structures, and that, we, and, 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 and that uh, this has a great deal to do with the influence of deconstruction, and we'll come back to that much later in the course. But in any case, he continues, to give a text an author is to impose a limit on that text, to furnish it with a final signified to close the writing. Such a conception suits criticism, and criticism is a lot like policing, right? Criticism means being a critic, you know, criticizing. Such a, such a solution suits criticism very well, the latter then allotting itself the important task of discovering the author or its hypostases, society, history, psyche, liberty, beneath the work. When the author has been found, the text is explained, a victory to the critic. In other words, the policing of meaning has been accomplished and the critic wins, just as in the uprisings of the late 60s, the cops win. And this is, you know, again, the atmosphere uh, in which all of this, all of this occurs. Uh, just then to reinforce this uh, with, the, uh, with, with, with the pronouncement of Foucault at the bottom of page 913, right-hand column. The author is the ideological figure by which one marks the manner in which we fear the proliferation of meaning. Now this may, uh, once again, I mean, you, sort of the, the skepticism about skepticism in you says, why should I fear the proliferation of meaning? I want to know what something definitely means. I don't want to know that it means a million things, you know? I'm here to learn what things mean in so many words. Uh, I don't want to be told that I could sit here for the rest of my life just sort of parsing one sentence. You know, don't tell me about that. Don't tell me about these, these complicated sentences from Balzac's short story. I'm here to know what things mean. I don't care if it's policing or not. Uh, whatever it is, let's get it done. And that, of, that of course, is approaching the question of how we might uh, delimit meaning in a very different spirit. The reason uh, I acknowledge the, the, the legitimacy of responding in this way is that to a certain extent the preoccupation with what shall we say, the misuse of the appeal to an author 
is very much of its historical moment. That is to say, when uh, one can scarcely say the word author without thinking authority, and one can definitely never say the word authority without thinking about the police. This is a, you know, this, this, this is a structure of thought um, that perhaps pervades the lives of many of us to this day, has always the per pervaded the lives of many people, but is not quite as hegemonic in our thinking uh, today, perhaps, uh, as it was in the moment of these essays by Barthes uh, and, and Foucault. All right. With all this said, how can the theorist recuperate honor for certain names, like, for example, his own? You know, all right, it's all very well. You're not an author, but I secretly think I'm an author. Right? How, 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 let's, let's suppose someone were dastardly enough uh, to harbor such thoughts. Uh, how could you develop an argument? How could you develop an argument in which a thought like that might actually seem to work? After all, Foucault, setting himself aside, he doesn't mention himself, Foucault very much admires certain writers. In particular, he admires, like so many of his generation and other generations, Marx and Freud. It's a problem. It's a problem. If we reject the police-like authority of authors of whom we may have a certain suspicion on those grounds, well, we certainly don't feel that way about Marx and Freud. What's the difference then? How is Foucault going to, to mount an argument uh, in which privileged authors, that is to say figures whom one cites positively and without a sense of being policed, can somehow or another stay in the picture? Foucault, by the way, doesn't mention Nietzsche, but he might very well because Nietzsche's idea of genealogy is perhaps the central influence on Foucault's work. Uh, I think it's, frankly, I think it's just an accident that he doesn't mention him. Would have been a perfect symmetry because last time we quoted uh, Paul Ricoeur to the effect that these authors, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, were, and this is Ricoeur's word, masters. Whoa! That's the last thing we want to hear. You know, that they're not masters. Foucault couldn't possibly allow for that because plainly the whole, the whole texture of the discourse would be undermined by introducing the notion that it's okay to be a master. And yet Ricoeur feels that these figures dominate modern thought as masters. How does Foucault deal with this? He invents a concept. <laughs> he says, they aren't authors. They're founders of discursivity. Founders of discursivity. And then he says, it's kind of, he grants that it's kind of difficult to distinguish between a founder of discursivity and an author who has had an important influence. Right? And then he talks about the Gothic novel. And he talks about Radcliffe's and Radcliffe's. He's wrong about this, by the way. The founder of discursivity in Gothic novel is not Anne Radcliffe. It's Horace Walpole. That's okay. Um, he talks. He, he talks about Anne Radcliffe uh, as the person who establishes certain tropes and topoi and premises uh, that govern the writing of Gothic fiction for the next hundred years and indeed even into the present. So that she is, Foucault acknowledges, in a certain sense, a person who establishes a way of talking, a way of writing, a way of narrating. But at the same time, 
She, she isn't a person, Foucault claims, uh, who, is, who introduces a discourse or sphere of debate within which ideas, without being attributable necessarily, can nevertheless be developed. Well, I don't know. It seems to me that literary influence is not at all unlike uh, sort of speaking or writing in the wake of a founder of discursivity, but we can let that pass. And on the other hand, Foucault is very concerned to distinguish figures like this from scientists like Galileo and Newton. Now, it is interesting, by the way, maybe in defense of Foucault, that whereas we speak of people as Marxist or Freudian, we don't speak of people as Radcliffian or Galilean or Newtonian. I mean, we use the adjective Newtonian, but we don't speak of certain writers who are still interested in quantum mechanics as Newtonian writers. Uh, and that's interesting in a way, uh, and, and, and may somehow or another justify Foucault's understanding that the texts of those author functions known as Marx and Freud, whose names might be raised in Poulet's lecture class uh, with an enthusiastic response as placeholders for those fields of discourse. It may, it may in some sense, reinforce Foucault's argument that these are special inaugurations of debate, of developing thought that do not necessarily kowtow to the originary figure. Certainly debatable. I mean, we don't, we don't want to pause over it uh, in the case either of Marx or of Freud. Plainly, there are a great many people who think of them as tyrants, right? But, it is, but, but within the traditions that they established, it is very possible to understand them as instigating ways of thinking without necessarily presiding over those ways of thinking authoritatively. And that is the special category that Foucault wants to reserve for those privileged figures whom he calls founders of discursivity. All right, very quickly then to conclude. One consequence of the author, the death of the author, the disappearance of the author into author function, is, as Foucault curiously says in passing on uh, page 907, that the author has no legal status. And you say, what? What about copyright? What about intellectual property? That's a horrible thing to say, that the author has no legal status. Notice once again the intellectual context. It is a copyright arose as a bourgeois idea. That is to say, I possess my writing. I have an ownership relationship with my writing. The disappearance of the author, like the disappearance of a, a, a kind of corollary, corollary disappearance of bourgeois thought, um, entails, in fact, a kind of bracketing of the idea of copyright or intellectual property. And so there's a certain consistency in what Foucault is saying about the author having no legal status. But maybe at this point it really is time to dig in our heels. I am a lesbian Latina. I stand before you as an author articulating an identity for the purpose of achieving freedom, not to police you, not to deny your freedom, but to find my own freedom. 
and I stand before you precisely and in pride as an author. I don't want to be called an author function. I don't want to be called an instrument of something larger than myself because, frankly, that's what I've always been. And I want, precisely as an authority, through my authorship, to remind you that I am not anybody's instrument, but that I am autonomous and free. In other words, the author. The idea, the traditional idea of the author, so much under suspicion in the work of Foucault and Barthes in the late 60s, the traditional idea of the author can be turned on its ear. It can be understood as a source of newfound authority, of the freedom of one who has been characteristically not free and can be received by a reading community in those terms. It's very difficult to think how a Foucault might respond to that insistence. And it's a problem that, in a way, dogs everything, many of the things we're going to be reading uh, during the course of the semester. Even within the sorts of theorizing that are characteristically called cultural studies and concern questions of, I of the politics of identity. Even within those disciplines, there is a division of thought between people who affirm the autonomous integrity and individuality of the identity in question and those who say any and all identities are only subject positions discernible and revealed through the matrix of social practices. There is this intrinsic split even within those forms of theory, and not to mention the kinds of theory that don't directly have to do with the politics of identity, between those for whom what's at stake is the discovery of autonomous individuality and those for whom what's at stake is the tendency to hold at arm's length such discoveries uh, over against the idea that the instability of any and all subject positions is what actually contains within it, as Foucault and Barthes thought as they sort of sat looking at the police standing over against them, that's it, that, that this alternative notion of the undermining of any sense of that which is authoritative uh, is, in its turn, a possible source, finally, of freedom. And these sorts of vexing issues, as I say, in all sorts of ways, will dog much of what we read during the course of the semester. All right, so much for the introductory lectures, uh, which touch on aspects of the materials that we'll keep returning to. On Tuesday, we'll turn to a more specific subject matter hermeneutics, what hermeneutics is, how we can think about the nature of interpretation, and our primary text will be the excerpt in your book from Hans-Georg Gadamer and a few passages that I'll be handing out from Martin Heidegger and E.D. Hirsch. <laughs>